It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Strange Boat Podcast. I hope you're well and catching a few. I'm Keith Arthur and joining me on board today is Sean Harrison. I first met Sean over 30 years ago when I was selling diver fishing tackle into shops as a rep and he was selling it out of a shop to anglers. The shop was Walkers of Trowel in Nottingham and it was one of my favourite calls for several reasons which should come to light soon. But you want to hear from Sean, not just me. It's really good to talk to you again, mate. How are you? Yeah, it's a long while since we spoke, Keith. Yeah, apart from written on social media, I suppose. We've had a few little conversations on on your excellent Facebook page. Thank you for that. You obviously enjoy it a great deal, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I try and vary the content to put on there. People keep ticking likes, so I keep doing it. Yeah, quite a lot of cooking stuff on there, as well as the fishing stuff, as well as bushcrafty stuff. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get into that a bit more in a minute. But the main reason I enjoy the reasons I enjoyed Walker calls so much were manager David Bardens, who was a really interesting bloke who knew the tackle trade inside and out. One of my favourite match anglers also worked there, Johnny Rolfe, who by then had converted to fly fishing and gave me a casting lesson on the outside pool, and he taught me that count forward one two back one two and i've never forgotten it and i still do it in my mind's eye when i'm flinging a bit of fluff and of course you uh, you already had a reputation as an excellent big fish angler and you ran that department what was it like to work there because it was a real it, it was like a mine of information wasn't it the whole shop uh, it was a lovely scenario really i i started there straight after leaving school so i've always been in the tackle trade right to this day and it was a nice thing at the time. There was very little carp gear available when I first started there in 1980. And I was just proud of how we built things up and how things moved along. I mean, 1980, wow, that was a, that was a long time ago. And you, you, I know you were there for quite a while, but the um, you, you say about there wasn't much carp gear. It was really at a time when the Trent was coming to the fore as a carp water, wasn't it? I mean, there were a few decent lakes around there that had carp in, but by when I started going there, which was 1990, the match fishing side of the Trent was in decline, which is why Rofi had stopped 
his match fishing and was, was fly fishing mostly That's at right. Rutland. Well, with another great match angler, John Dean. Um, and I, I remember I, I wrote a bit in Angling Times a few weeks ago about the, how terrible the Trent was at that time. And, and I definitely remember, quite opposite to today, we blamed the fact that there wasn't enough sewage going in. They cleaned up the sewage works, the river was too clear and we couldn't catch fish. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, living on the banks of the Trent almost, I've, you know, all of my life's been outside of the Trent. I've seen so many changes of it just in my short life. Yeah, it, it, and it's it's coming back a bit now as it, it's come back as a match water, but still big yeah, fish. Yeah, so I gather, yeah. Yeah, there, there don't seem to be quite so many carp um, as there used to be then. Do, do you have anything to do with the river now? Uh, I fish the river more for the barbel than the carp these days, but it, it seemed the carp disappeared after a really big flood one year. Um, I personally think oh, yeah. they probably got diseased from a nearby lake. I think possibly KHV and such like went through, but it they just finished suddenly. Obviously, there's carp in there still. There's the nearly all escapees from still waters, a uh, very different yeah. type of fish to what we used to catch. But no, the original trank carp, they, I'd say one season they was there, the next season they were gone. But there was abundant whilst really? they were Really? It was there. as quick as that? Yeah, yeah, there yeah, was a well, lot there. I, I, I know a bit like down here at times, there are more bivvies than there are seat boxes. Yeah, that's, funnily enough, I had similar rules to the barbel fishing. I never bivvied on the Trent. I never did long sessions or anything else. Most of my Trent fishing for the cart was in the evenings after work or pre-work. But even just short sessions, two and a half, three-hour sessions, it wasn't unusual to have two or three carp. That's amazing, isn't it? And mostly yeah. in the winter as well. Yeah. Now, now that's the stunning thing. Same here on, on my little bit of the Thames down here, which is semi-tidal. It, it, it's, um, it's got a barrier at the bottom end that maintains a navigable depth, so it comes up for two hours and down for two hours. But below at Richmond Lock, it goes out all the way and comes obviously comes in all the way afterwards. At the moment, they're having what they call the draw-off, which is a month every year when they let it go all the way out, so they do any maintenance work that needs doing. But October was the start of the carp fishing on the Thames. Maybe it was because the, the boats died off a bit then, but it was always it always seemed much better after October than earlier in the year. And, and the fishing here, I mean, I was never hard on the carp fishing, but I know people that were, and, and they caught some magnificent fish. I just went and caught one because I live, my favourite carps from on the Thames is six minutes walk from where I'm sitting now. Excellent. So I'd usually catch one and come home. Once I'd caught one, that was a job done for the day, oh my go. And and it was magnificent fishing. And I know how, just by reputation, how good the Trent was at the time. Yeah, possibly a different situation on the Trent, though, because we had all the power stations running along it. Yeah. So I used to mostly winter fish it because we got warmer water there when all the lakes were froze over, something that doesn't seem to happen so much these days. When the lakes were froze over, the Trent would often be steaming with the warmer water. Yeah. Fishing down uh, the margins. Yeah, everybody yeah, said the warm water was in the edges, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we've got several power stations there. They they altered how they ran in the end. Uh, they don't regurgitate the warm water like they used to. But at one time, you'd be you know minus two or three on the bank, and I'd sit there with the feet in the water, keeping feet warmer. <laughs> you know, the water, everything would be wet through all the time. There'd be mist all the time because the water was warmer than the air. Yeah. But yeah, it was artificially heated, really. 
Yeah, I, I, I fish my, my because I, like you, I worked in a tackle shop for a long time. I mostly fished the Trent on Sundays, and it was uh, apparently it wasn't quite so warm on Sundays because industry no, didn't no, need the right. power, so the stations didn't chuck it out. No, it was noticeable on catches as well. That was I'd, I'd always struggle on a Sunday, yeah. but back in the day, I used to take a Wednesday off, and it was predictable. You'd turn up and you catch them as long as you'd you'd given them a bit of food, and that's knee deep in snow and everything as well. Did you notice they were they were nomadic? No, no. Some, no doubt, were, but a lot of them were very, very territorial. Uh, one of the areas I would concentrate on quite a lot in the mid eighties. Um, I think from memory, I only actually caught one mirror. Yeah, a friend, unbeknown to me, he was fishing about half a mile downstream. He hardly had any commons. There was nearly all mirrors, and we both had repeat captures. So. It took quite a lot to move the fish in the early days. That's quite a surprise. Maybe it's the tide here because I know we've we've had fish. I mean, we caught fish here some years ago when there was a big flood. I think it might it was before twenty fourteen. It was in the early two thousands when they had a big flood, sort of around Reading. Um, a couple of fish that used to live in Sonning Eye were caught down here, and, right. and that's I think it's nineteen or twenty weirs and locks downstream. Yeah, and two buses by the sounds of it. <laughs> Perhaps the most re- – well, no, I, I think they came down – I don't think they were assisted. I don't think it was uh, It was assisted travel. Perhaps the most interesting one, and I don't know if I've had it 100% confirmed, but I've seen pictures of this particular fish. And um, a young carp angler put it up on Facebook, and he caught it from the lower sections of the River Lee, and the previous captor – was Terry Hearn from here on the Tidal Thames. Now, that's either had to get on the Stratford line from Richmond Station and go across by train, or it's gone all the way down into the Pool of London and then back up the Lee, which is which is Chalkwall. So it could have done it on a flood, but fish normally... That's why I can't understand the, 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 the Reading fish coming down because so many of them migrate upstream. But carp... Usually, I mean, they're the first ones. If a lake floods, they're the first ones in the car park. The Bream and Rachel yeah. stay where they are, and the carp are out having a mooch around. And nearly and, always going against the flow as well. They usually exactly. go upstream. Exactly. That's yeah. right, as do, as do most fish, yeah. that was yeah. Um, so, so now, you, you, so you say you do your, your barbling on the Trent now. Are you, are you still on the Middle River? Uh, yeah, yeah. I um, It's a strange one, really, because I don't think twice about getting in the car and driving 120 miles fish of still water. But with living so close to the trend, I, I begrudge driving much more than 10 miles, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of, you know, a lot of trend in that in that distance with the, you know, the loops and the zigzags and everything. But no, I, a few years back, I was doing a lot more barbel fishing. The, unfortunately, the stretches that I was fishing have been really heavily predated with the otters. And it, it just got such hard work compared to how it had been. And it was similar to how the carp fishing was to me, really. I'd, I'd known it to be so productive. It's difficult to sit in them same swims and, you know, and suddenly from two or three fisher trips to one every two or three trips or more. Mm. So were, were you fishing like, like the, more the Burton end or were, were you still on the sort of Burton Joyce end, than, than what I call the Nottingham, below Nottingham? No, above Nottingham, mm. all above Nottingham. Um, mostly from the Long Eaton stretches up to well, just above Swartston. 
Oh yeah. But again, yeah. there's a, a lot of river on there. I prefer the upper river to be fair. It's a much smaller river, much narrower river. And I just enjoy fishing that more than the bigger, wider stretches. Mm. I, I made a comment a few years ago about that actually. And, and the way that the barbel took over there at one time, in fact, um, you you may know of, or you may know Joe Brennan, who's a more of a seven match angler. He's yeah. now a brilliant photographer. Does a Was lot that Brennan time. and Hitman? Exactly. That Joe. Yeah, yeah, Joe and Laurie. Yeah. This is Joe Brennan. His son Rob is a great angler now as well. And I remember once we stood on a bridge, I think it was Swarkston Bridge actually. And he, this was would have been I think nineteen eighty three, which was the year the the national was on that bit of the upper trent. We called it the match anglers called it the upper trent. And he said to me, Do you know, Keith, if I could get a bar a, a poison that only killed barbel I would put it in this river here because they're destroying the fishing. And sure enough, five or six years later, it was difficult to catch anything yeah. other than the barbel in, in, in the right conditions. And um, then suddenly the barbel disappeared. And I thought maybe they hadn't reproduced there or they'd been, I know there was a quite a big pollution and, and yeah. I know barbel are very prone to pollution, but they seem to disappear. Like you said, the carp did. Not quite overnight, and now the river has come back and 25, 30 pound a day, 25, 30 pound a roach, which in the late 90s, early zeros, we, you just didn't get. No. And, and no. now I see Swinnow running matches there, Wayne Swinsco running matches on, on Bass Island and, and, and the old Bass, Bass Brewery stretches. And they, they're catching, even in bad conditions, you know, either low and very clear or with a couple of foot on and, and going through a funny colour. They're still catching plenty of fish, very, very few barbel. And the barbel of either, whether they've migrated south and are now all around that, around Cromwell Weir, I don't know. I know there are quite a few now at Burton Joyce, but in the pegs that they were, always were in at Burton Joyce. I think it was old, was it 183? 183 or 185 in the old oh. days of the pegging on the roads just down from the roadside that was the bar that was the barbel peg and there's still a big barbel peg there but it right. seems like the top end where you'd think they'd be more prolific that's where they disappeared from you, you mentioned otters and quite possibly otters had something to do with it but it seemed like a much more to me anyway looking at match results a much more dramatic decline but there weren't many matches there when it happened because the fishing had gone so terrible for, for Roach, Dace and Chubb. They just sort of vanished like the barbel did. Yeah, it, it was always going to be short-lived on the fishing I was having. I, was, I mean, it was incredible fishing I had for a couple of seasons, but I had more over £11 than I had under, so there was nothing coming through at all anyway. Uh, they are obviously yeah. struggling to reproduce in the stretches I was fishing. Uh, it seems on the Nottingham Piscatorial Waters... The Calverton fish farm take brood fish from there and replace a lot of fish there. And it, it seems stuff with barbels still down there. But the upper reaches, they just, it's not a patch on what it was. And, and they were originally stocked fish, weren't they? Because the, the Trent up there was quite badly polluted. And, 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 and Calverton stuck a load of barbel up there or, or stocked a load of barbel up there. And, and then I think they must have bred for a couple of years. But then, like you say, pop, suddenly nothing. It was very, very rare to catch a single figure fish when I was fishing out. And that's what happens with a big fish. It's like, you know, the, the, the big chub on the Thames. I mean, there's the smaller ones are starting to come through now. And I think I saw, again, mentioning Wayne Swinsco, I saw a video he made for, for Drennan and he caught some small chub there at Shelford fishing fishing a slider. And um, it seemed every other fish he caught was like a, not quite a bullet, a bit bigger than that, sort of a 
10 inch, maybe, you know, six, eight ounce chub, that kind of size. And they're coming back a little bit on the Thames now, but they disappeared here as well. I've, I did hear that the, the very hot summers we had, 76, 77, they were the start of the chub boom. So through the 80s and 90s, or 80s up to about 90, there were, there were just loads of chub everywhere on almost every river. And going back to, to your own fishing and your carp fishing, I know that you're, um, you make bait, don't you? And, and, and you sell bait. How did you get a set, set about doing that? Were you still in walkers when that started? It all started really. I, I was looking to do anyway something different. Uh, been there 25 years. And it was a strange one. I was doing an insurance claim for a customer one day. And he went through all the bits, sorted his rods out. And it was like, what rods do you use? And I showed him. He says, I'll have them. And what reels do you use? Showed him and he had them. And it was quite flattering. But I remember saying to him, I hope I never turn up in your swim. I'll end up getting in your bivvy. You know, so just <laughs> basically copying everything I got. But it came to the bait. And he said, what do you use? And I couldn't honestly put my hand on a bag of bait and say, this is what I use. And mm. straight away, sort of bells went in the head and I realised there was a bit of an opening there for me. You know, I, I felt I could offer the types of things that I did use and explored it and realised I could. Yeah, it was a strange one, really. And to this day, I haven't got a clue who I was serving, which I regret. You know, it'd be nice to know who, who triggered it, but it was just that yeah. comment that day. Wow, that's, that is a coincidence, isn't it, to get into something like that? Yeah, well, I'd got quite a big background in bait before that anyway. There's quite a few of the Nash bait products had come from me in the first place. Uh, there's Sting Oil, there's, there was base mixes. I won't run through them all, but, uh, you know, I'd already, I was known for the bait side of things. And one of my, I don't like the word, but heroes when I was, sort of coming along reading things with Jim Gibbonson. And I remember flicking through one of his books and him actually mentioning me and he used some of my baits, his, his favourite baits. And I didn't know anything about that till I'd read it. And, yeah, I was quite touched by that one, really. But, yeah, it's, although I didn't stop Quest Baits till 2005, I'd, you know, there were bait products out there since, well, 1988 was the first one of mine that appeared. And that was with Nash. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you make much of a range? I know you, you, I always read about your, your Raja, is it Raja Indian Spice or something that, that you, you call it? I can't yeah, remember. Raja Spice has gone Raja on from spices. since day one. We do another one called Rockpool Raja. Uh, it's play on the word, really, because, I, you know, the Raja is quite a well-known one now. Yeah. But it, it's been very difficult since uh, we dropped out of the EU. Uh, we can't export anymore. And, a big chunk, big percentage of our business was overseas. So it's, I'm totally honest, been really, really hard. And obviously COVID kicked in when people couldn't get out. So, yeah, it's not, not a great business at the minute. <laughs> no, and, 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 and to be honest, the world and these dogs doing it as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And when you look um, at the seems amount of bait be... supplies there are these days compared to, to 2005 when you started. Yeah, yeah, and when I sort of look at some of the things on offer it uh, it does make me wonder what they're putting in there for some of the prices that they they managed to sell out yeah but, I, uh, I, anyway that's I've another story that one i've spoken about that to one of my old pals is uh glingomasaw and, and as you probably know he makes a bit of bait and yeah. um he was saying he he cannot buy the ingredients that he needs to make his baits 
for the prices that the baits are being sold at, at retail even, never mind wholesale. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a morals thing and everything, you know. I, you know, I know what I sell and one of my favourite sayings is, you know, I sleep well at night, I don't have to worry what I've sold anyone or what I've told anybody. But uh, it does make me wonder what uh, what some people are having to use, presuming they're using something different. Yeah, or they're, or they're losing loads of money. Well, they don't last forever doing that, do they? You know, no. there are companies out there that's been out there for quite some time. Uh, apart from the Bay, it's sell fishing holidays as well. I, I'd seen that. I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't know if you were. I didn't know if you were an agent for somebody or. Or, or so, how does that work? Middlemen basically putting people together someone will ring me up we'll run through the sort of things that they want and offer them the water i think would best suit them and is that all carp fishing yeah yeah it is and and, and mostly in europe or at home as well yeah mostly well it's all in france at the moment we dabbled a little oh, bit yeah. in holland and and other things but no france is is where everybody seems to want to go um, we we don't run with a with a lot of venues, but we try and do it right for a few venues. Again, France, like bait making, is, is, there seems to be just a, a massive number of, of lakes um, that either weren't there or certainly weren't there as carp fisheries thirty years ago. Do, do you do you tend to deal with the more established ones, the more natural wild waters? Yeah, a little bit of a mix, really. We do sort of, you know out and out commercial type ones and and some that appeal to me a little bit more <laughs> it, it's funny really because the, the sort of waters that i'm not so interested in fishing they're our most popular ones so you know you, you cater for for all types really i suppose it's people want guaranteed action don't they They want their buzzers going they want their rods bending they want the nets wet preferably two or three yeah right? yeah and, and and whereas you like to catch I, I think i mean i'm by no means a carp anger and i'm by no means a a, a specialist one but i like to think when i catch a fish it's not been put back two hours before yeah yeah you know, yeah I, I personally a lot of people just don't get it but i actually get bored catching them if that doesn't sound wrong oh no 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 it doesn't um, I, I'm more a, than a couple honest. of day and i'm not really i don't appreciate them the same either when i'm catching a lot of fish I was leading on to say there was a, a little story, of, you know, which probably highlights my not wanting to catch lots. Um, I had a trip in Italy, and there was quite a few of us there. It was a, a free spirit gang and friends and such like, and I think it was 18 or so of us there. And amazingly, I was second top rod that week, which, you know, is just not heard of because I'm not competitive or anything at all. But I was sat there one day and Jamie and mate came along and like, you know, have you had any more? And I said to him, no, I said, if I could be bothered to put some bait out, I'd, I'd catch some. And I said, do us a favour, Jamie, spot us some bait out. And he no sooner picked the rod up, started putting a bit of bait in and I counted them going in. The fifth one went in and it, it roared off and I had a £50 common on it. You know, absolutely lovely fish. Got it in the net, we're just sorting out what we're going to do with it. And the other one went, and there was a £50 mirror on that one. And it sums me up, really. I was sat there knowing I could catch one, but wasn't that bothered. You know, and I, I struggled to explain that one to people, but, you know, I was yeah. made up to catch those fish. They were cracking fish, but it's it's not the important thing to me. I like to feel as though 
I don't know, when I'm catching them regularly, I don't feel as though I'm achieving a lot. I quite enjoy, you know, the challenge, really, and, you know, it's slightly more difficult words that you have to think things through a little bit more. And the fish were coming. But, like I say, if I'm catching more than two and three a day, I, I just I tend to switch off a little bit. I know when I read about people catching multiple catches sometimes, and, and you read, I really struggle to keep the third rod in the water. Why bother? And that makes me scratch my head. And think, it was, well, yeah, I, I saw a photo probably three or four weeks ago now. The first time we had a drop of rain down the Thames, the first time a drop of water came through, and there's a famous spot about two miles from here where the, 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 that bit of river, and it's a long bit of river, a couple of miles, is just full of bream. Now, how when the river's normal, you can't cast out and feel them on the way down, I have no idea, because there are a lot of bream there. I mean, I, I watched them spawning one year, and the shoal of bream went from from Teddington Lock, which is the end of the, 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 the non-tidal river, and I walked all the way up to Canberra Gardens, which is just downstream of Kingston Bridge, and there were bream spawning everywhere. A few carp in amongst them eating the spawn, but there were bream spawning everywhere. And and the first drop of water we have down, they feed. And and I saw a picture of a bloke, and, and he had a, a, a long keep net, and it was full of bream from top to bottom. He'd lifted it out and, and put it on the, on the ground, which is, you know, I, I couldn't understand why he did that, but equally I couldn't understand why he caught them all. They were all the same size. It wasn't a match. And and Pete Clapperton, you you'll know from Van der Nijn and, and, yep. and Bait Tech, he said to me once we were we drew next to each other on a match in Ireland, I fish for bream, he fish for roach. And he looked at me, he said, Keith, I can't understand. I'll make my mind up whether this is heaven or hell. When you catch a fish every cast. You know, it, it, and, and you don't really have to do much to catch them. Just try and catch them a bit quicker, like a golfer putting the ball on the tee, knocking it down the fairway, it rolls straight into the hole every time. Is that heaven or is it hell? And it, it's 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 the same as I felt about this bloke with the bream. Why, yeah, it's why? both to different people, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. On know, a match. Some people thrive worry, on be, that. And yeah, I'll be going down the shop to buy another bucket of bait and, and two more keep nets. It wouldn't worry me at all. But... Um, but just to go out for fun and catch 50, maybe, I don't know, 50, 60 identical size bream, not bothered. No, no, yeah, I've got a good friends who who just love to stack the carp up, you know, and they, they're always quoting numbers. I've had the odd session with them on productive waters, and again, I just, I don't know, I, I just feel as though I'm not achieving a lot. <laughs> But saying that, they'll totally outfish me, you know, because of the state of mind and they're prepared to catch a lot of fish as well. That's the other thing. I'm never prepared to catch a lot. No. You know, I'm messing about tying rigs up in between fish and I might stop and have a brew as well. And <laughs> like I say, it's, it's just <laughs> not that important to me catching a lot of them. When you say have a brew, and um, we'll now get on to your more, um, more countryman type thing, you're, you're certainly not someone that bothers with the flask, are you? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I I enjoy the size of the fish. Now, I, I think it's probably with doing it for so long, you start bringing other elements into the fishing if you can, or it's certainly how I did. And, you know, I, I started giving myself more challenges. I, I started cooking a lot on the bank many years ago. But for the last 10 years, I've only cooked with twigs and sticks. 
And it's just a scenario of giving myself another challenge and making things a bit more difficult. Plus, I get a kick out of it. You know, I find it interesting trying to work out how to do things on sticks rather than turning the gas knob on. Yeah, but you're not like heating up pop noodles or, or, or putting on frozen lasagna, are you? Oh, no. No, I do proper meals. Yeah, I've done a full Christmas dinner on the bank. Not Christmas Day, but I've oh, done all sorts. done venison haunches and all sorts. Yeah. Oh, I've seen them, mate, on Facebook. Yeah, and incidentally, Sean's Facebook page is Sean Harrison Angler. That's S H A U N Harrison Angler. And and if you want to see some examples of good cooking, that you you cooked a bass or some bass the other night, and that looked absolutely magnificent. And and the the variety of vegetables you use as well, and the way it looks. Um, I mean, I know you don't do it to decorate a plate, but if you went into a top class restaurant, you would love to get that piece of bass just broken in half so you can see the white bits and the cauliflower and the broccoli or whatever it, broccoli it was, wasn't it? And, and, and other veg underneath it and a bit of rice. Blimey, O'Reilly, I'd have given anything to walk through that screen and have a nibble, I tell you. <laughs> There's probably more cooking stuff on my Instagram page, to be fair. I do an Instagram page called Sean Harrison, Love of the Outdoors. Um, oh, yeah. I added a lot more on there other than the angling. Obviously, the Sean Harrison Angler, I, I, I put a bit of cooking on there as well for variety, but that's more aimed at the angling. The the other side, I, I do a lot of walking and and just general outdoor stuff that tends to go on my Instagram page. I'll have to have a look at that. I'm not. I've got to confess, although I use it, I'm not a great user of Instagram. But maybe I, I will. I'll find you and, um, and and hook up on there because I'm into. I, I do. I do cooking outside, but it's in my garden. I've got a camado and I cook all sorts of things on that, including a full Christmas dinner. But it's a bit easier mm. with, um, you know, the equivalent of a, of a big green egg. Although it is, it's green, but it isn't a big green egg. It, it, having one of those and uh, and being able to, you know, stick a turkey on. I've got a rotisserie. I've got all, oh, you know, what it's like once you buy something, you have to have the works, don't you? And, uh, yeah, your, your stuff is very classic, though. You, you have things custom made don't you for your cooking yeah same in my angling as well to be fair i've never never followed the norm i've always tried to do my own thing and if lots of people have got something i'll look for something a little bit different and it's it's just my nature i've often joked that punk rock and cart fishing came into my life in the same year in 1977 and I think it was the non-conforming of the punk side has carried on through throughout my life, really, through everything I've done. Found an alternative way to, to do the same thing? Yeah, yeah, I just get a kick out of being different rather than following the crowds. So you're not a bait boat user? No, I've never used one. Well, I tell a lie, I once took a marker float out with a bait boat. I borrowed somebody to take a marker float out just in case mm. there was something a bit further than I could reach. But now I've, I can honestly say, hand on heart, I've never caught a carp with a bait boat. Oh, I have, but it wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were filming in, um, in Gran Canaria. And, and right. the guy we fished with, I used to fish with his dad many years before in, in England, in London Angler Association. Not on Lake Shearer. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been up Shearer. Yeah, and um, he had a little spot that the people he used to take weren't very good at casting, 
and and right. this spot was on a it was very low when we were there which it quite often is as you know and and there was a, a drop off really close to the bank about i don't know 45 meters maybe 50 meters and um he didn't he didn't want to cast for people so they could say they caught it themselves so he used to put the baits in a boat chug them out and drop them off the side so they were on this ledge which wasn't very right. deep but it was above it was on a, a proper big drop off and um i asked if i could mm. have a go at casting and he let me <laughs> yeah we, we it was it was great fishing the fish there are so they're so different from what you'd normally see big plated mirrors huge mouths whether they swallow swan mussels hole there or not i don't know or big yes, crayfish exactly it's a thing totally different uh, diet i was told that general franco introduced the carp there i don't know how true that really? is hmm yeah, apparently he was a very keen angler, salmon and other things. And he was apparently responsible for putting carp onto the islands. And they must have been mostly mirrors because you don't see many, well, I didn't see many commons. I don't, don't think I saw a common. No, it's, like you say, a lot of them very, very big scale mirrors and yeah. quite pointed tails compared to what yes. we catch here. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how they evolve, isn't it? How, how fish evolve for a venue, maybe over years, I don't know how many generations. One of the, the most interesting chats I ever had with anybody, not on here, sadly, perhaps one day I might be able to get him on, was uh, Peter Rolfe, who you'll probably know about. The, 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 I call him the Crucian bloke, but he he, he, yeah. he did a lot of research and he's, he's written that great book, Crock of Gold, and then on the garage wall, but the Crock of Gold is about Crucians. And, and I made a film with him and he was telling me that if you've got, a batch of crucian fry and you put some of them in a pond where there are no perch and the others in a pond where there are perch, the ones in the perchy pond will grow much deeper in the body to make it more difficult for perch to swallow them. I've heard that somewhere before. It's That's obviously where it came from originally then. And, so and that's, not, that's not even a generation. When you think about people saying, oh, these fish can't move here because climate change is seeing them off. If crucians can change shape in a matter of weeks, and he said it was a matter of weeks, you could notice the difference. Then right. uh, I don't think we've got half a degree to worry about much. This, this evolving is a very strange thing as well. I, I went to fish for the smallmouth buffalo in Texas, and they look very much like a carp. People refer to them as buffalo carp. Mm. Yet they're not related at all, the suckerfish family. Yet they grew with the same long dorsal fin, similar shaped bodies. Like I say, you know, they're not related in the slightest. No. But if if you look at fish that are similar, if you look at, uh, let's see if how many I can remember. If you look at barramundi, and then you look at snook, and then you look at zander, some of them have got teeth, some of them have got swallow. Yeah, even even um, cob, the South African sea fish, which I think probably enter into rivers as well. They're all that similar sort of shape. Redfish, even you look at barbel and bonefish. Yeah, take take the whiskers yeah. off a barbel, and it's a bonefish. Cross a barbel with a grayling, you've almost got a bonefish. Yeah, yeah, that graylingy shaped mouth that bonefish you got. Yeah, amazing things. As you say, evolution is uh, is a remarkable thing. Unless, of course, they've all come from the same two or three species anyway. Oh, I'm sh- I'm sure that's the case. I- I'm sure that's absolutely mm. the case. I'm, I'm, I, nothing will convince me more 
that um, that that is exactly what's happened as their environment has made them change to suit where they are. And as the, the, the continent shifted and, and we got different weather patterns everywhere and as the fish spread out, as the continent shifted, etc., that's um, that's how it happened. And there was no point in bonefish having barbules but, but, and, and not much point in, in barbel having whatever bonefish have. Um, yeah, just a, just a, a crazy, crazy thing, but I'm sure. I'm sure that that's, if only we could go back a couple of million years to find out for certain. So what what got you into your cooking? Uh, Splitting up with the first X. (laughs) Suddenly I was able to fish a lot more and uh, I was... Well, I was fishing sort of four nights a week, still going to work, you know, fishing in between work. But I was living on whatever the garage had for sale or the chip shop or whatever. And within a few weeks of doing that, I was I was just getting I was getting run down. And it was a customer in the shop who who said to me about it. He says, You want to alter your diet now that you you're fishing as much. And from what he'd said it it just made sense, you know, it was since I'd been eating crap basically. Um that I was I was just forever worn out and tired. And the place I was fishing, the car was as close to you as you wanted it to be. And I got no excuse at all not to be cooking things. And it started from there. I just tried to start preparing the same sort of food as I'd eat at home and found I enjoyed that as well. I enjoyed the outdoor cooking anyway. And just carried on pushing things forward, you know, challenging myself, trying to do bigger and bigger meals. Suddenly one pot became two pots and and there you go. Yeah, looking at the size, of, looking at the, the size of the portions you put up, it's difficult to tell with photography because there's not a, with social photography on social media because there's not much to measure it against. But you don't look like you go hungry. Oh no, I don't go hungry. <laughs> <laughs> things can be deceiving as well because I get a lot of comments about the amount of gear I carry for cooking. Yeah, my cooking gear is is probably as small as everybody else's. Everything folds flat that I use. Like you know, the little cooker everyone sees. It looks a big box thing, but it it's takes no more room up than an envelope. Is that because um, you've designed it like that? No, no. The most of the cooking gear is readily available. You know, I bought from various companies, but uh, it's like you say, photography can be very deceiving. Some of my pans are a lot smaller than people seem to think. The amount of times people comment about the amount of food there, and there's not actually. You know, there's certainly not enough to feed one and a half. That's the, that's yeah. why the portion sizes look at you've got the plates to match. That's one of the tricks of dieting, isn't it? Apparently, you buy a smaller plate so yeah. it looks fuller. Yeah. Psychic well, a friend of mine, the, the plate that I use, a friend of mine keeps saying he wishes they'd make them bigger. But <laughs> if they did do, I'd fill it and they'd eat it. But yeah. no, yeah, I, I do eat well. You know, I carry a bit of weight and everything else. But, I, you know, it's not over the top with it. No, you're, you're certainly not. And, and you, uh, on the same um, tack, you're not just, uh, let's throw up a Titan, are you? You're, you're not a, a big bivvy man. No, not if I don't have to. No, I, I quite enjoy using a hammock and tops and such like. Uh, main reason, I can fit one in each pocket. You know, you the biggest bulk in all the cart fishing gear is the bivvy and the bed. Yes. And, you know, you don't need them everywhere. Uh, for 18 years now, my sleep's been monitored because of an illness I've got. 
and I know exactly how long I sleep every night and everything else. And I actually sleep longest in a hammock out of everything. That's including bed at home, bed fishing and everything else. I sleep worse at home than I do outside. Best is in a hammock, second best is on the bed chair and third is bed at home. Oh, that's a good excuse to go fishing more, I suppose. Yeah, well, exactly. I don't really need the excuse, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly fish more than 100 nights a year, even to this day. Yeah, yeah. it's it's minimum of two nights a week. And, you know, I do it all through the year. So what's your favourite time of year for carping? Uh, definitely winter, uh, autumn and winter. Over the years, nearly all of the personal bass of course have been winter fish and i enjoy the fact there's less people about and it's more me against the carp and not me trying to get near a carp to catch do you know it's really strange you you you, you may know i'm i'm a trustee of get hooked on fishing and we've got six little pools in west london and at the moment it's easier to catch one of our very scarce now bigger carp the ones that were stocked in 2014 and are now some of them are over 20 pounds than it is to catch a six-inch rud. Yeah. And there's not many. There's, only, you know, five or six maybe in, in, in each pond, maybe one or two more in a couple of ponds and, and a couple less in the other ponds. But if you, you put a bait in the right place, you're more likely to catch a, 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 a bigger carp than you are to catch a little roach or a rud. It, it's, it's quite phenomenal how, I suppose, because of their size, they just need to feed a bit more. How big are the waters you're fishing? Are they, they huge lakes? or I'm not on any huge lakes at the moment. The largest ones are 20-odd acres. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've fished bigger ones in the past. Um, I was a member of Grenville for quite a few years. That was 80-odd acres. Um, I fished 26,000-acre one in Texas. <laughs> That's big enough, isn't it? I mean, that was... Yeah, we was in a bay there and we couldn't see the far side. It was over the horizon. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite an impressive place. And, you know, I'm quite happy on an acre and a half lake as well. You know, I'll just take them all as for what they are. I've been looking at uh, Gary Newman's social media. He's currently in China fishing for black carp. And the lake he's moved on to now is 132,000 acres. <laughs> That's an impressive one. That's... Uh... That's going to have waves on it, isn't it, in the wind? Well, you wouldn't want to be on the wrong bank, would you? Well, which is the wrong bank. <laughs> exactly. The one where you're not getting bites. <laughs> he's not getting bites at the moment either. The bait they use, the, 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 the natural bait that he used on the smaller lake he went to where he had one of these black carp, which look a bit like grass carp. Is that the snails? Yeah, the snails he was used. Did you see Yeah, pictures? I saw one of his pictures. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, two snails joined together in their shells. They're, they're like ramshorn yeah. snails in their shells with a bit of pop-up foam in between. It looked like um, on a hair. And uh, the last, then the, the, this when he went to this new lake, he was using sort of plugs of um, like a miniature stick of rock of parboiled sweet potato. But he'd not had any bites on that, so he'd gone. He's trying the snails again there. So I haven't heard any more. He's another one like you. Only he doesn't. Well, he does cook his food when he's at home, but not when he's fishing. And I think he's fishing at some quite nice places. He's going to some quite nice restaurants where he's fishing. He put a picture on the other right. day of a steak that in China cost him 140 quid. And um, right. yeah, exactly. Last night he was talking about his um, aubergine and, oh, what was it? Aubergine and I think it was 
was it fish? I can't remember. You know, they you look at them and your mouth waters. Yeah, he had a bit of um, snowflake steak, they called it, which is sort of the highest grade Japanese Wagyu. And, right. Yeah, 140, right. 140 quid for 400 grams. Mm, I think I'd rather have several lesser quality ones. <laughs> so, several not, <laughs> not quite as good, yeah, yeah. So, have you got any? I mean, you mentioned Jim Gibbons, Jim Gibbonson earlier, who was who was um, using some of the baits you designed. Have you got any carp fishing heroes? Do you, do you, you know, have a a yen to do like Walker or Chris Yates, or you mentioned Jim or, or Jack Hilton? Um, any of those? Jack Hilton was the one that sort of fired my imagination with carp, with Quest for Carp. That's no secret why the. The bait company was called Quest Baits. You know, it was on the back of the Quest for Cart book. Yeah. Um, in the next era to Jack, it would be Rod Hutchinson. As I was in the early years of me cart fishing, people seemed to go the Kevin Maddox route or the Rod Hutchinson route or whatever. And I saw Kevin Maddox really as a robot. He, he just seemed to be a little bit too proficient. I quite liked the fact that Rod Hutchinson had accidents and did things wrong and it didn't always go right. Yeah. And I just saw myself in Rod more than I did on the cabin side of it. I don't really like the name, the word hero, you know, it's, you know, people you admire and you look up to and, you know, Rod was that one really on writing States. It was Jim Gibbonson, but I think on the angling side of things, it was, it was Rod really. Yeah. yeah the, the, hero isn't a good word, but I can't really think of, of something else that describes it quite as well. But uh, I, I know exactly what you mean when you you know you, you wouldn't have fall down, fallen down on your knees and begged for his autograph or anything. But he was someone you you looked up to if you someone you admired admired. Well, I mean, these people. Fortunately, a lot of people have sort of yeah admired. I like it's like Pete Springer. I, I really admired Pete over the years, and you know Pete's the one I've, I've got to know very well in more recent years, and you know it's just thoroughly nice man. And the the people I've admired over the years have ended up being nice people. Some of the ones who I didn't follow, who I met, weren't so. Yeah. So I like to think I'd, I judged a character before I met them, really. Yeah, I can agree with that in, in many cases. <laughs> yeah. um, and let's, let's have a look at Quest then. Do you consider your carp fishing a Quest? Have you got an ultimate fish that you could catch, sit back on your... your in your hammock and say, well, I think I'm done now. No, no, I just like catching carp full stop. Uh, they don't have to be big for me. I, I fish waters that some of my friends just don't understand me fishing because of what's in there. But I, I, I enjoy fish. I enjoy angling. I'm an angler. I'm not a, not a big carp angler. I've caught some big carp, but it's not, not the thing that fires me. So the venue is the most important thing to me. And do you think you could, or, or do you ever, sit on a venue like like a, a big lake with a very, very limited number of fishing? So every fish you catch is sort of a trophy, regardless of, regardless of, of which one it is. Yeah, I've, I've gone down various routes over the years. Um, I mean, in the late 80s, I joined a water where to get a bite a year was doing well and you know i spent a couple of years on there and i did get more than a bite a year i did very well on it to be fair <laughs> but uh, no I've, I've gone all, all all types of venues but 
I said earlier I don't enjoy catching a lot of fish, but I also in these days I'm not so interested in fishing on a water where I'm going to, you know, end the season with two or three fish. I do like to catch them a bit more than yeah. that. But uh, yeah, I like to think that when I go out, I, I stand a reasonable chance of getting a chance. You know, I don't have to have guaranteed fish or anything. Do you set your stall out for one particular fish at the waters you go to? No, the last fish I actually targeted was in 1987. And I always said I wouldn't target one again after that. Did you catch it? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Britain's largest essentially caught catfish at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, but uh, because I'd, I'd so set my mind on that particular fish... I was catching some really nice fish and not appreciating them for what they were. It wasn't the fish I was after, and it was wrong. It was wrong. Since then, I've, I've just never targeted a particular fish and try and enjoy them all. That's a pretty good philosophy, I reckon. So what's next for you? What are you up to? You, 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 the bait company's still going to keep going? Yeah, as long as we can. It's still trickling out there. Um, I'm... I'm just enjoying life at the moment you know the the bills get paid so i keep doing what i do and fish as much as i can don't sound bad which is usually a couple of nights a week and you're you're with free spirit have you got any other tackle bits i know free spirit of i mean they've come on a bundle i remember when simon bomb showed me the first samples that was a long time ago and you think well Well, i've been involved with them since day one since before there were any rods that's it's been on 25 years yeah At which, which yeah. you looked at at the time and you thought, well, I don't know if that's going to last. It's a very limited range, very limited market. The market's grown and grown and grown and grown, and, and now there's a bit of match tackle and everything coming to the free spirit yeah. range. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird one for me because I remember the first show we ever did, we were stood behind a, a, a paintboard table with nine rods to show mm. and hoping to be taken seriously. But, you know, it makes me smile now. I still do the shows for them. And, you know, we're a sort of eight, nine hours set in stand-up now. Yeah. And, and you, yeah, you, you think as well, because I'm, I'm fairly certain I'm right in saying they were um, Chinese-made. No. Were they Japanese, the original ones? Yeah, Japanese and Korean. Oh, yeah. And a lot of them were built here, weren't they? Yeah, all of them. All the um, top-end ones, high S's, are still, still built are in they? the UK. yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's how they get that, yeah. that great finish, I suppose. And I've, do you know, I've never heard a comment from anyone saying they've had a free spirit rod go wrong. And undoubtedly, there will be because everybody has to be odd ones, yeah. you know. Yeah. But um, I mean, I was selling them for years before I finished at the shop, and now out of everything we sold, we, we probably had less issues with those than anything. And it was a very limited range of stockists. Did you have twelve stockists across the country? That's right. That's, That's right. Yeah, it was increased a little bit since then, yeah. but it was yeah, it was always kept. Well, the, the shops actually bought into it to get it going in the first place. I remember. So it was never set up like a, a you know a normal tackle company. And Simon, of course, had his reputation from Shimano. He was well known for the work he'd done for them, and very obviously highly trusted by people. Yeah, yeah. Well, he moved on to Fox from Shimano, didn't yeah. he? Then. When they started Free Spirit, it was, well, the name of the company. He was doing it for himself. Yeah. He suddenly became Free Spirit and he was able to do that. And I, I think when he first approached us with the idea of it, it was the name of the company I liked as much as anything. It, it uh, rang a bell, did it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, which showed, I guess, again, goes back to this of me not conforming with things, trying to do my own thing along the way. And yeah. So, what's next? Have you got anything in the pipeline? You got any future plans? Or are you going to keep catching fish and cooking food? Yeah, as long as the health still allows it, I'll still be out there doing it. And yeah. nothing, no, no little secret squirrel stuff in the in the in the mix for later on. You're going to keep visiting your waters. Yeah, that's a secret that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's still secret well done mate yeah well listen it's been great talking to you it's um it, it's very different from how we used to converse um Marofi interrupting and and customers coming in and everything but it's it's for me even more enjoyable and uh, I, I know it's not something you're that familiar with but it's been it's been great talking to you sean and i look forward to following you now on instagram as well as on facebook and um I might even come up with a recipe for you. Well, you never know, do you? <laughs> what, for a cake? Well, do you, <laughs> do you know, I, you know, I, I used to, in fact, yeah, I was, I was going to the Florida Keys when I was calling on, on, on walkers. Um, I've, not, That's right. I've not been for a few years, so I've not had any key lime juice. And, and one of my wife's nieces was over there earlier on this year, and she sent me four bottles of key lime juice. I've just finished the first one, and I've made key lime pie, key lime baked cheesecake, Key lime muffins, which is a first the other day, with key lime icing on them. And um, I, I get a pizza every Friday night from a, there's a local Italian guy here, um, from Naples who does proper Neapolitan pizza in a van with a wood oven in the back. And I every night, every Friday, I just phone up and he tells me what time to come and pick it up. He knows what my order is. And um, he said to me last week, oh, you should try making granita. So um, on Sunday, I made some key lime granita, granita and that's nice as well. But I won't send you a right. key lime recipe because if I do, I'll have to send you the key lime juice and I've only got three bottles left. <laughs> well, you won up on me there because it's the baking is something I don't do. So, Nor me. Uh, yeah, I still need to learn that well, one. Well, and somebody, just very quickly, somebody told me the other day that cooking is a gift, but baking is a science. Everything right. in baking you do by numbers, you do by accurate measurements, you do by accurate. Oh, that won't suit me. Exactly. Which is when I've got like a, a 12 pound lump of brisket on my camado, I can go out and prod it and know when it's cooked. Or I might take its temperature, yeah. but I know, yeah. I know when it's cooked, but when I give it a poke and the, uh, and the probe disappears inside it, that's you know, when it feels like going into, uh, into runny honey. That's when you know it's cooked. <laughs> well, I'm regularly asked if when I'm going to release a book on cooking, and it couldn't be done because I don't time things, I don't measure anything, or nope. I just cook by eyesight. Yep. I mean, to me, cooking is merely warming food up at the right speed. Yeah. And well, there, there is a bit more to it than that, and um, I might give you my recipe for spicy carrot soup. I don't know yet. I'll see. <laughs> but oh no i can't because that's a shake of this a little bit of that drop of turmeric a bit of mango powder yeah well no i won't do that i won't mm. i won't force that on you all right mate listen it's, no, that's how I exactly yeah I'll, I'll, oh but somebody did tell me the other day um just as a little tip i use um amchur which is dried mango powder in um yeah every sort of asian recipe that i do and somebody told me the other day it is a brilliant tenderizer for meat now i've not tried it yet 
Right. But apparently, if you use it like you would, I don't know what other tenderizers there are, but if, if somebody was saying bicarb, I don't fancy that. I thought you were just slapping it around the kitchen. Yeah, give it a bash with a hammer. But apparently, um, and, and that might work on venison, you know, because that can be that can be a bit um, a bit stringy sometimes. But yeah, and sure, yeah. mango powder. Right. Remember right. that one. Thank you for that one. You're welcome. All right, mate. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I will keep contacting you over over social media and we'll continue our um our journey together on that. And um Yeah, well, likes your comments. Who knows, there might be one day when um when we get together and I get to see you again. Don't know when it'll be, but nice. fingers we'll crossed. Line somewhere one day. Hey, yep, exactly. All right, mate. It was great talking to you, and I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, all the best, Keith. Cheers, mate. Cheers. My thanks to Sean for that fascinating insight into his angling life. I'll be back soon with another visitor to the strange boat, but for now, from me, Keith Arthur, it's thanks for listening and tight lines. Sports Social Podcast Network.